Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. For we are in the business of provocative inquiry. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Don't forget the forward slash chat, as my pretty bride tells me or reminds me all the time. We do have a great chat room, so Ravinder, tell us all about it, please. Yes, we have a good chat room, and we'd love for you to join us, too. You know, add into the conversation. Uh, bring up your questions. You can often ask questions when you're on the air. Um, we also share lots of other information in the chat room. So if you're not able to join us live, you can always go back and look at the chat log afterwards. And, you know, if there, as I said, if there is any other information, you can get it then. So, I mean, oftentimes we'll have the actual guest or the guest assistant in the chat room. So, yeah, we do often get um, additional info. Come join us. That's provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Okay, in today's spotlight, I wish to discuss visualization. This is a tool that we all possess, but few give it the rightfully due respect it deserves. Indeed, one might argue that visualizing things is but an exercise in imagination, and in some ways, it is. But does that make it less worthy of our interest? I think not. Still, we are often encouraged to give up the use of practices like daydreaming, visualizing fantasies, and the like, because the emphasis is all too often today on what we think of as left-brain dominant thinking, logic and reason. In light of that emphasis, allow me to remind you how visualization often trumps the so-called left-brain linear method of solving problems. Take, for example, the Pythagorean theorem. All of us had to learn this one. The axiom for a right triangle, spelled out by Euclid later, states the observation by Pythagoras as a squared plus b squared equals c squared, where c is the hypotenuse. Pythagoras visualized this as the square of the hypotenuse is equal to the sum of the squares of the other two sides. Now, notice that with Pythagoras there is a picture of a right triangle, and he proved this theorem by using other right triangles or images instead of axioms or symbols. Let's also remember Descartes, who theorized that algebra could be visually portrayed, and as a result, we have the Cartesian coordinate system, which is still in use today. In other words, the picture of algebra, the visualized form, is geometry. For years, one of my hobbies has been the geometry of sound, something referred to as cymatics. My studio is equipped with gear designed to visualize sound lifetime. So when I wrote about the fact that Handel's Messiah always displays a perfect five-pointed star during the Hallelujah Chorus, it was something I could observe and confirm in my own studio. 
I've shown this to many people. But it still astounds me today how some music can display such perfectly harmonious and joyful geometry, while other music delivers totally discordant information. As humans, we are particularly good at pattern recognition. Computers can do many things faster than the human brain, but pattern recognition is not one of those things. We excel at recognizing such things as the faces of people we know, even if they have aged many years since we last saw them. This ability is something that gives rise to recognizing the importance of our visual system and our evolution. Years ago, I remember reading a study that tested the power of imaging basketball free throws. Three groups were recruited by researchers. Each group shot free throws and their scores were recorded. One group was sent home to do nothing for 30 days. One group was asked to practice free throws every day for 30 days. The third group was instructed to visualize free throws for 30 days. When the 30 days had passed, the groups were brought back and again tested on the accuracy of their free throws. There was no change in the group sent home to do nothing. But both the group who visualized and the group who practiced improved. And get this, their improvement was basically the same. Now, my purpose today is not to teach you to visualize as you can already do that. No, I wish rather to emphasize the importance of using visualization this tool in your toolbox, for it can not only solve problems, including those difficult mathematical expressions, but it can also empower us in many ways. Visualization can train our bodies to perform better, build expectations that lead to success, and shape everything from our posture to our creative abilities. The fact is, everything can be pictured visualized, and given sufficient creativity, this even includes the world of quantum physics. Clearly, a picture can be worth much more than endless words. Einstein put it this way, imagination is more important than knowledge. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? Oh, it's definitely a great tool, something um, I've used a lot. I use it all the time, so if I'm having problems going to sleep, I picture myself standing on the beach and hearing the waves crashing. I don't count sheep, they're boring. Um, I just hear waves. And then, you know, if I have an event coming up that I'm uptight about, then I will often picture the event going well, you know, being successful. So if I have to speak in front of a group of people, particularly, you know, I will picture myself doing it ahead of time. And it really does make a difference when you actually come to do that. So it's a great, great tool. You know, I think a lot of people think of visualization that way. You know, I'm going to visualize success. I'm going to, but I had a conversation just a couple of nights ago with our son, a senior in high school, and we talked about a problem, a math problem. So the problem went something like, uh, you know, Jane and Dolly. uh, Let's see. Let's do this right. Bob got a B. Jane and Dolly, one of them did better than Bob. Amos, Bob's other cohort, did worse than one of the girls. What grades did they get? Now, if you try to solve that in your head, you've got a real problem. But if you just create a matrix, you know, 
you line up on one uh, axis, Jane and Bobby, you know, each of the characters, and on the other, the grades, and you start filling in the blanks based on the knowledge you have. Suddenly, there's the answer. But that's a visual process. That's not the linear logical process that I would think of normally in a rational way. And, and that, to me, is the real power of visualization. Okay, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our guest was Dr. Andrew Newberg, and we discussed how enlightenment changes the brain. William wrote, what a great knowledgeable guest Dr. Newberg is. Do please bring him back to the show again. I could have listened to him for hours. We will do that, William. Dr. Newberg is indeed a favor of mine as well. Kathy wrote, I love Dr. Newberg. His work is so interesting. Thank you for having him on the show. Peter wrote, I like the idea of little steps of enlightenment that lead to larger forms of enlightenment. Richard commented, why is it always an awareness of non-material stuff? Is that enlightenment? Now, that's an interesting question, Richard. And that description does seem somewhat oxymoronic on its face. What do you think of that, Ravinder? It does indeed. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's a, it's a very interesting question. I'm aware of nothing. Food for thought. Or is it no thing? I will give up everything for no, for no thing. thing. Nothing. I, yeah, okay. Yeah. Moving on. Mama posted this feedback regarding last week's spotlight. Dr. E, you once again show and explain how there's always more at work in our lives than we think. Having survived abuse, I know all too well how I can be my worst enemy. I use InterTalk to help me to stop living that way. While I still feel challenged with giving myself credit for having come a long way, I'm thankful every day for having the opportunity to continue to change. I love and appreciate you and Mrs. T for all that both provocative enlightenment and inner talk do for this world. You like that, don't you? I do indeed. Well, we're truly honored by your words, Mava, and we will continue to do our best to deserve them. At least I think she will as well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm teasing, of course. Mike wrote, you explain things so well, Dr. Eldon. Of the many of your programs that I have and use, eliminating self-sabotage is probably my favorite. Your programs flat out work. Thank you. Finally, Amania wrote, years ago I bought many CDs and got my mom healed from cancer, stage four, with a free cancer program. Your tapes are incredible and they work. Well, we're both very happy for your mother, Amania. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for your letters today, but I do invite you to opine by emailing me at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook. We sincerely appreciate your comments and feedback. Now to this week's show, Mini Habits, with author and coach Stephen Guise. So what is a mini habit, you might fairly ask? I mean, a habit is a habit, right? Well, we'll just ask our guest that question today, for he started doing at least one push-up every day, and that was his first mini-habit. Two years later, Stephen's mini-habits have him in peak physical condition, writing four times as many words and reading ten times as many books. His copy states, Mini-habits combine Stephen's life-changing experience above with science, logic, and humor. It rejects common self-help and habit formation advice in favor of smarter strategies that work with a modern hectic lifestyle having many habits enables you to move forward consistently 
even on your worst days, close quote. His book, Many Habits, has not left the bestseller list since it was released, selling more than 125,000 copies worldwide. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Mr. Stephen Geis. Thank you, Eldon. It's a pleasure to meet you. Oh, it's our pleasure indeed. I enjoyed your book. You've got some really interesting ideas, and I, and I want to flesh those out in the show. But first, we like to consider three things. Uh, who's the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, how would we use it? So to that end, please tell us a little about yourself and why and when you became interested in the idea of mini habits. All right. Uh, my name is Stephen Guys. Um, I consider myself a regular Joe, even though my name is Stephen. Uh, so I guess my interest in mini habits started probably 10 years ago when I first wanted to change my behavior. I was kind of a slacker in school and you could say in life. <laughs> so uh, I developed a lot of bad habits. And as I matured, I realized I wanted a different sort of lifestyle. And so I just tried to change my behavior. And I found out that that was a lot easier said than done. <laughs> so that's when I started writing and thinking about behavior change. And then I came up with many habits kind of accidentally 10 years later. All right. You heard today's spotlight, Stephen. Did you use any visualization techniques or even just imagine yourself being where you are today? Uh, you know, I found that very interesting because I think uh, what we're going to talk about today is kind of uh, a complement to visualization, though I don't know how well integrated they are. Um I'm sure they could be integrated, but I see uh, practice as another way to change the mind. Visualization would be one way to change how you think and perceive the world, think about and perceive the world, and practice is another way that we can do that. Okay, so you didn't you didn't sit back and say, all right, I'm just going to do one push-up. I'm going to visualize myself doing one push-up every day. That's it. I'm going to do one push-up to begin with. If I feel like doing 10, maybe I'll do 10. But every day I'm going to do at least one. You didn't do anything like that. What did you do? Uh, you could you could argue that. I uh, I mainly committed to doing one a day, and uh, I didn't really worry about the results of that or think much about what it would end up like. Okay, let's do this. You state in your book, the very beginning, that you believe that you were the problem, and that's why you failed at your big goals. So, one, why did you believe you were the problem? And two, what did you learn that changed your mind about this? Okay. Yeah, I believed I was the problem because I was following conventional strategies, mm -hmm. which uh, were supposed to work, but they weren't working for me. So I assumed, oh, they're not working for me, but Flesh that out. they work for other people. Flesh that, that out for us. What, what do you mean by traditional strategies, please, Stephen? Uh, mainly motivation-based strategies, like the, the whole idea of 
getting motivated and getting your daily motivational fix. So okay, so, thought, so you wanted you wanted to improve, and to improve, you were going to motivate yourself. How were you going to motivate yourself in the old-fashioned way? Uh, the most common way is just to try to think your way into doing things. Like maybe you're you're down because of some reason, and then you'll try to basically argue with yourself into doing something or try to convince yourself with thinking certain thoughts. So you're standing in front of the mirror or you catch yourself walking by, that's better still, and you happen to notice you've got this this ripple hanging over your belt. And you don't want that. So you say to yourself, you know, that's it. I'm changing. I'm doing something different. I'm going to take that belly off. And uh, and your motivation then becomes destructive in a sense. I'm going to destroy that belly. That's the traditional. Isn't that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, and the the problem with that is that it's not a consistent thing because it's based on our emotions. Right. So if you have a bad day or something, you're you're not going to necessarily feel like doing anything about the belly. Right. And even if you feel like it, you're not going to have um, a a complete strategy. So you might grab somebody's diet program or somebody's exercise program, but then what keeps you doing that? And isn't that why most people fail at their resolutions and and their weight loss programs, et cetera? I mean, is that what you found? I believe so, yes. Um, Because most people like me assume that they are the problem when I think that we are a lot more constant than we think we are. It's because we live in such a dynamic world that we perceive ourselves as acting differently in different situations. I think it's mostly that so many variables around us are changing and studies have shown that our behavior is somewhere around 50% habitual, which means subconscious. It happens beneath our conscious awareness. Yeah, actually, the literature shows us now that about 90% of our behavior is automatic. As far as habits are concerned, nice. you know, the nucleus accumbens is making those decisions. And, you know, we just think that we're... We're making the choice. We're actually rationalizing why the choice. But okay, so you have. I just want to make sure I understand this. So you made this realization. I'm not the problem. Uh, how, how did you, you know, come about then devising a change to that? If you weren't the problem, well, who was? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, And I thought about that. If I'm not the problem, what is the problem? And really the only answer at that point is you have to look at your strategy. What's your strategy for taking action? And from what we know about the brain, uh, we develop and strengthen neural pathways by repeating a behavior. So I thought about the behaviors that I wanted to uh, succeed in, such as fitness, reading, and writing. And so I figured, okay, I need to do these 
more consistently. And once I elevated consistency to the highest priority, that really changed the entire strategy. It was no longer about the size of my goals. It was about, can I do this every single day? Consistency, the magic in the happening. All right, then define for us a mini habit. I say a mini habit is a stupid small behavior that you cannot perform to fail every single day, even on your worst day. And so I say it's I, stupid small just because it it kind of makes you laugh when you say it out loud or tell someone. So I decide I don't like that belly. I'm going to do one plank every day or one push-up, whatever, one sit-up. And then I make sure I do that every day, come rain or, or, or whatever, right? That's right. Okay. And, and, and that in and of itself is what you did to change from where you were to where you are? Yes. And the reason is because it changed my brain. I, at first, I just did it as an experiment because the first push-up I did turned into a 30-minute workout that I couldn't motivate myself to do before. So that really got my attention. And from that point on, I said, okay, I'll just do this for the full year, 2013. But after six months, I really noticed a change in how I related with exercise. And that is really the key when you're thinking about a behavior. How do you relate with that behavior? Is it, is it a foreign thing to you as exercise was to me? It was like before my mini habits, exercise was a special occasion. When I would exercise, I would feel really good about myself as this as if I had done something spectacular. And now it's like it's just a normal part of my life. And that's the habitual component of it. That's the brain changing. Neurons that fire together, wire together. So what you were really doing is repatterning your brain as you establish this new habit of exercise. Have I got that right? That's right. Okay. Now, did you ever have a day that you faltered where, you know, well, I was going to do one push-up, but I'm not going to do it today. I just had a big piece of cake or something. (laughs) I don't think I had a day like that because it is just one push-up, and I could complete it right after this sentence, between sentences. I did have maybe three days in the six months in which I forgot to do it, and I did have some days when I actually did the push-up in my bed at night <laughs> because I remembered <laughs> at night <laughs> just to meet the requirement. But I found that was actually significant, too, because it kept my winning streak alive. And there's also a lot of psychology involved in, in setting and reaching goals, like uh, just looking at a – I actually marked a massive calendar with check marks. Just seeing all those check marks in a row is very encouraging. Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that really hit me about your book, you've pretty well brought out now, and that's the notion that success came from a commitment to consistency, not to a goal. And that's a pretty big, you know, 
um, turnover, if you will, of of the traditional idea of how we we do something. You know, most of the gurus out there are going to say, well, you set a goal, make it a realistic goal, and crystallize your thinking, and, you know, da-da-da. But what you did was commit yourself to the consistency of doing something so easy that there was no excuse not to ever do it every single day. Have I got that right? That's right. And really this concept, I say in my upcoming book, which isn't released yet, this concept is really the advanced program. I know when you hear just do one push-up a day, it sounds like something you'd tell a kid or something. It sounds ridiculous. But it's actually much more advanced than most goal systems because those don't even attempt to change your brain. It's just like a kind of a free-for-all Wild West, like, oh, we'll, we'll see if I reach my goals or make any progress today. It, it seems like it's all left up to chance and if you happen to be feeling it that day, whereas this is a very calculated approach to change your brain. Well, your book makes that clear, and it does so with some great humor as you go along. The book, again, is Many Habits. We have a hard break coming up, Stephen, so we'll pick this back up after the break. We're speaking with Stephen Guys about his life and book, Many Habits. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at Stephen Guys, and that Stephen is S-T-E-P-H-E-N, Guys, G-U-I-S-E dot com. Now, we have a video for you in our chat room today featuring our guest discussing the tomorrow delusion. So if you're not in the chat room already, now is the time to get on over there. But remember, if you're driving or otherwise unable to open your computer right now, you can come back later and review the chat room details, including view the video. Okay, do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Do you feel like you've become lost in the funhouse, only seeing the reflection of yourself, past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you? I invite you to step through the doorway and onto a pathway leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Eldon Taylor's New York Times bestselling book, Choices and Illusions. Now expanded, updated, and revised, it will provide you with real-life examples of how you can break free of your current perceptions and begin your journey to How High Is Up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor.
Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Mr. Stephen Guise about his life and book, Many Habits. You can learn more about Stephen and his work by visiting his website at stephenguise.com. Now, we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some genuine significance to them. Music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, and we often get a fair amount of self-disclosure when we listen to our guest's favorite music. So on that, we just played some of Holding On To You by 21 Pilots. So please tell us, why is this music important to you, Stephen? And how does it instruct us about who you are? Uh, Honestly, I really just like the music itself. Uh, Though I do really appreciate the lyrics from 21 Pilots of the band. Uh, I believe this song in particular is about his struggle with depression, which honestly I can't say I struggle much with. Uh, so maybe I'll talk about another of their songs, Car Radio, which is a pretty powerful message. He uh, talks about how his car radio is stolen, and because of that he just has silence in the car and I think that's just kind of a powerful uh, comment on our society, how we're always plugged in and distracting ourselves. And that can make us uncomfortable with silence, which I think points to a problem. You know, we sometimes, we sometimes, as you've already pointed out, operate from an unconscious process, and uh, then we consciously design reasons for why we did you uh, don't think these lyrics and holding on to you uh, had any particular meaning to you? I mean, did you have to deal with, uh, you know, depression or bouts of being down like that? Oh, sure. I've been down. Uh, I just, I wouldn't say it's a chronic issue. But, yeah, I think it's powerful to anyone because nobody is 100% happy 100% of the time. Uh, Amen. Well, that's as candid as it gets. Listen, a lot of our listening audience, of course, wouldn't have been in the chat room, and uh, therefore they wouldn't have seen the video that we just did, but I've had a couple of text messages regarding it. So please explain the tomorrow delusion for those that were unable to view that video. Yeah, so uh, that video is about 
uh, a way we deceive ourselves by thinking that tomorrow is going to be any different than today. And that video is a way to illustrate that. Uh, I, I haven't seen the video in a little while, but I believe it's a, an ant creature who is trying to reach candy, <laughs> and the candy right. is worth five points. So he, uh, he just decides to get it tomorrow, basically. And the next scene shows him uh, further away from the candy, and there's actually uh, a bit of a ditch in the ground. So he would have to jump even higher to get the candy. And it progressively gets worse and worse. And at the end, the chocolate bar is trying to eat the ant, which uh, kind of shows how uh, it, it can just get really bad if you always put things off until tomorrow. And uh, the, the big overarching lesson of that is to assume that today is all you have and that you're setting a precedent today for every future day. Amen. On the other hand, it, we like to think that, you know, tomorrow things can be different because that offers us hope. And sometimes when you're dealing with tragedy or trauma, we need to be able to think that tomorrow will be different. Um, with respect to goals, I, I certainly understand what you're saying. But do you think that holds across in all cases that today is the precedent and uh, tomorrow isn't going to be any better than I make today? Is that is that kind of a a motto by which you would live, or do you think there's a place for both in our world, depending on the circumstances? Well, considering that tomorrow never actually arrives, because when it arrives, it's today again, I really do believe that uh, our focus is best placed on today, because hoping for something better tomorrow, uh, I don't really believe in that sort of passive thing. I believe in being active today in order to actively make a better tomorrow. That's my take on it. Okay. All right. Um, I'm not I'm not sure how I would adapt that to some circumstances, but thank you for your definition. Let's do this. Uh, What do you mean by ego depletion? Ego depletion is defined as the depletion of the self. You could also call it willpower depletion. Anytime you take an action that you subconsciously resist, that supposedly takes up some amount of your willpower. Okay, now I, I guess I'm a little confused there. So maybe maybe you can clarify that by telling me, you know, what's the difference between motivation and willpower? Sure. So motivation is when we want to do something. You're motivated to do something. Willpower is when you're not motivated to do something, but you force yourself to do it anyway. So they work kind of like a seesaw where the more motivated you are to do something, the less willpower you need to do it. If you're fully motivated to do something, you don't need any willpower. 
if you have no motivation to do something, you need a lot of willpower to get yourself to do it. Okay, I got you. Which of the two uh, do you favor and why? I favor willpower because it can be combined with many habits to create the ultimate tool or the ultimate strategy for consistency. Because if you only require just a sliver of willpower to say do one push-up, then you're not likely to ever fail. And that creates the consistency. We tend to think of motivation in, in a large sense. You know, you think of a, a football team, a basketball team. You think of a great coach, you know, a Newt Rockney uh, and uh, the pep talks and so on and so forth. How how would you apply willpower in that scenario? Or in that scenario, is does motivation top willpower? Yeah, I think you can say motivation tops willpower in that situation because that situation is a very unique situation that uh, we don't really, maybe if we always had that coach right next to us to uh, give us the motivational speech, maybe that would help us to be consistent. But I still don't think that would be very reliable. All right. Tell us about your reward plan now. I mean, motivation doesn't work, and yet you have a reward plan. And to me, you know, reward comes with motivation. They're kind of like, you know, opposite ends of the same stick. But, you know, what is your reward plan, and how is that not a part of motivation? I uh, I actually don't have a specific reward plan currently. I may have said that in the book, but uh, many habits don't really require extrinsic rewards, rewards outside of ourselves, because there is a built-in internal reward for completing any task you aim to complete. Uh, Motivation, I see, as a, a way to take action, at least in the context I've been speaking Okay, you, you did in your book, uh, Stephen, on page 89, uh, step four, create a reward plan. But you, what you're saying is you don't think the reward plan or the reward association, as you spell it out anymore, is a necessary part of the commitment to consistency. Have I got that right? That's right. Okay. And that's, be, that's because these uh, behaviors are so small. Uh, typically, in habit formation, They suggest a reward to, as you said, to motivate you into doing the task. But since we're doing a willpower and small task approach, we don't really need that to reinforce the behavior since we can do the behavior indefinitely without a reward. So the behavior itself becomes the reward in a sense. Exactly. All right. Um, before I continue on with my own questions, in line as a follow-up, I want to take a question out of our chat room that's in front of me. Richard from the chat room says, Japanese corporations have long used the technique of Kaizen to achieve business goals, very small micro steps to begin any change. Did you base your program on that? Were you familiar with that? Or, and are they basically the same? Uh, I have heard about that 
since writing the book. Uh, the motivation for writing, well, now I'm going to confuse people because I just use the word motivation in its second form, which is a reason to do something. Uh, but I won't get into that. My reason to write the book was because of my experience with the one push of a day and how it changed my brain. Uh, but I have heard of it and I'm a big fan of small steps because they say getting started is the hardest part and small steps break through that resistance. So it's very smart in all phases of life. As I understand it, I think further the Japanese system is all about goal orientation. So you have a larger goal and you divide it up into these smaller steps and, uh, you know, um, in, in, in a sense, if I understand you correctly, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, uh, what you do is not about a goal. It's 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 really about consistency, a change in behavior. Yeah, you could you could do it with a goal in mind. Like my goal was to get in shape, and the one push up a day was the way that I achieved that goal. Okay. So you could look at it that way. What would you tell our audience is the most important factor behind changing a habit? Consistency. There is nothing nothing more important than consistent behavior if you want to change a habit, whether it's replacing a bad habit with a good one or forming a good one on its own. You've coached a lot of people. Share with us a story or two, if you will, of how you've been able to help someone by starting them on this mini habit process. I don't do personal coaching, actually, but I do have a a story. uh, Oh, please do. Yeah, I thought you did do coaching. No, no, I haven't done that yet. I just I'm focused on writing books at the moment. Uh, but there was one really cool story. Uh, I think it was a, a young teenage boy who emailed me and said that he conquered his fear of the dark with the mini habit concept. There was a, a large shadow over a barn or something, and each day or each night, rather, he would take one step further into the darkness. And he said after, I think, about a month or so, he... Uh, he was just sitting on a bench in complete darkness, completely comfortable. Interesting. Interesting. Tell me this. Where would you have our audience begin with a mini habit? I mean, what should they do? Where would they start to build their new habit? I think you do want to start with, uh, you could start with a traditional goal, whether it's getting in shape or doing something more, whether it's cooking or dancing, reading, writing, you can start with the traditional big goal. And once you do that, you try to minimize, minify it into the smallest possible step that begins the process. So, and I say begins the process because I had a reader tell me that she had written 30 words in 30 days. Uh, And the problem with that is she didn't start the writing process because you can mindlessly write one word without uh, writing anything else because it it doesn't take much thought to write the. So small, 
but not so small that it doesn't start the process. I see a mini habit as a spark, and any of those sparks on any given day can ignite into a, a larger amount of work. Okay. If, uh, let's say, success, I mean, I think everybody gets fitness, you know. If, if I want to be fit, I'm going to have to start doing something. I remember my wife and I run, and the first time we ran, it was, you know, like a 100-yard dash, and it killed me. I mean, killed me. The idea of running, you know, a half marathon, 10K, 12K, get out of my face. Are you kidding me? But, you know, we just started running very, very slow and insisted on what you can call a mini habit. We're going to do this three times, four times a week. Well, now, you know, you run 12K and, well, you know, I can get bored. But, you know, it it, it isn't at all that killer event that it was when I first started. So I think everybody gets the idea where a physical is concerned. But what if my goal is success? Is it? Do, do I need to identify something that's holding the success from me in order to begin, in order to identify a, a mini habit? Or is, do you have kind of a pattern of, well, these are, these are the right kind of mini habits. Start the mini habit. Let's say you're a telephone sales. Begin a mini habit by making at least one phone call a day. I don't know. You know, do you have a pattern that, works as a template that would guide our audience in other areas than physical fitness. Sure. Okay. Um, define your, your end goal objective, then minify it into the smallest possible first step, but something that begins the process and aim to complete that step every single day and uh, also find a way to mark down your success each day. That's very important, actually, because it reinforces the commitment and encourages you. And uh, do not set a day limit. Like a lot of people do these 30-day challenges. There's no scientific evidence that habits are formed in 30 days. Actually, the one study on that found it was about 66 days on average, so with a crazy range from 18 to 254 days. So the lesson is we don't really know exactly how long it's going to take to form the habit, so let's not aim for a certain number of days. Let's aim for something we can do regardless of whether it's habit or not, because once something, ha- once something is habit, obviously it's easier to do at that point. All right. So we're going to set up our goal. We're then going to look at that goal broken down into the smallest possible steps. We're then going to take each one of those steps and maybe reduce it into a just a small part of what that step may be. And we're going to do that every day as a mini habit for 66 days minimum. I think Pavlo's conditioning response was 144 repetitions. So maybe you need to do 144 days. But we're going to do that until we rewire the brain. Then we're going to move on to the next step. Have I got that right? That's right. And then there are considerations like cues, whether you do it at a certain time each day, 
after a certain activity that's stacking the habit on top of an existing habit, which can be effective. Or as I did it, which is just a daily uh, deadline, one per day at your choice. And that's kind of a, a different approach than has ever been done before because these behaviors are small enough that you can actually form multiple roots, if that makes sense. Yeah, it uh, does. The it traditional, makes perfect sense. More like a bad habit, actually. If you think about when people smoke cigarettes, it's not at the same time every day. It might be several times a day with different cues. So you can sort of do that with a mini habit. And I've actually done that with my writing mini habit where I write at all different times during the day. For what it's worth, I actually think the worst possible bad habit is quitting. You know, we set goals. We say we're going to do something, and then we get partway in and we quit. And, uh, you know, when we do that, we just sabotage ourselves and we train ourselves that, hey, it's okay to quit. And that's precisely what we don't want to do. Let me ask you this. Has anybody ever argued with you that a mini habit is too small to matter? Uh, uh, No? I can't think of a specific example, but, I mean, you could say that society in general argues against me because they say to do the opposite. I think when people hear the concept and hear the explanation behind it, it makes sense to them. Uh, Commitment to consistency makes a lot of sense. I, and and your book is a fun read. We've got about one minute left. I want you to take 30 seconds of that and tell everybody how they can get your book, how they can learn more about you, um, and what you're up to. Okay. Uh, my book, Mini Habits, Smaller Habits, Bigger Results, is on Amazon. And make sure you look for Stephen Guys because there's some copycat stuff. Uh, and I also have another book, How to Be an Imperfectionist, which uses many habits to address the problem of perfectionism. And yes, it is a problem. It's not a positive. <laughs> the book would explain that. And I've got an upcoming book, Many Habits for Weight Loss, which I hope will really shake up the weight loss industry and change the way we think about weight loss. All right. Well, we want to thank you, Stephen, for your work and for your willingness to share it with us. Again, the book, Many Habits, Smaller Habits, Bigger Results. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, remember this. Wherever you are in the world... No matter what you're doing, no matter whether you're following mini steps or giant goals, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at eldentaylor.com.